Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. COVID-19 has shocked the world. The human toll of the novel coronavirus has been enormous. I want every American to be prepared for the hard days that lie ahead. We're going to go through a very tough two weeks. Now France emerging as the new hot zone in Europe, reporting its deadliest 48 hours. The curve continues to go up. Together we are tackling this disease. And I want to reassure you that if we remain united and resolute, then we will overcome it. Now is the time, though, to remain focused, to not let up, and to keep our eyes on the mission that we all jointly share. As it continues to spread worldwide, COVID-19 has also brought the global economy to a near halt. A stunning report just out. It shows a record-shattering 6.6 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits. That's on top of the 3.3 million who filed the week before. Food banks and other resources are being pushed to their limits by people in need. How bad can it get? Governments can stop the bleeding if they embrace smart fiscal policy, says our next guest. We need to re-engage in this conversation about the role of the public sector and what kind of an economy we want after the pandemic. Pavlina Chernova has long advocated for a larger government role in the U.S. economy, including a federal jobs guarantee. That's a fixture of modern monetary theory. Here's Professor Stephanie Kelton, a leading MMTer, explaining the concept when we interviewed her last fall. The way that we say it and the way that is most helpful for people to appreciate the main difference is to say the federal government issues the currency and the rest of us use the currency. The government spends its currency into existence and doesn't rely on taxes in order to fund itself. Pavlina is an associate professor of economics at Bard College. Hello, Pavlina. Yes, hello. And the author of the forthcoming book, The Case for a Job Guarantee. It's great. It's wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. How are you? Thank you. She joins me by phone from Annandale on Hudson, New York. Mine is recording right now. Great. Super. I want to start with the coronavirus pandemic. It's obviously forced many businesses to suspend operations and workers to stay at home. And there's lots of talk about a recession and even possibly a depression. I want to step back and ask what the state of the U.S. economy was before the pandemic began. Yes, it's a really great question. We are entering this moment with a very vulnerable economy. Even though when you look at the official numbers and statistics on paper, it looked like we were doing reasonably well. We had a pretty long stretch of economic growth about 11 years, and then the unemployment rate was at its historic lows. But those numbers really don't tell the full story. The labor market has been eroding and becoming more and more precarious for decades. So nearly half of American workers, the median income for about 44% of American workers is $18,000. It is very, very low. And we had seen this erosion and income distribution for about half a century, runaway inequality. Just to give you another example, if you look at the average, average real income for most families, 90% 
their income was lower in 2017 than 20 years earlier. So there are many ways in which we could look at the economy and say, okay, is this really a robust, strong economy? And it wasn't. It wasn't just that the labor market wasn't creating good, stable jobs for everyone. We saw the uh, biggest explosion in student debt. At the same time, you know, we have firms that weren't doing terribly well. We, we had this uh, increase in what we call the corporate debt bubble, which means that many firms were borrowing at increasing rates before the pandemic, but not to invest, not to build factories or employ folks, but the vast majority were borrowing to buy back their stocks. In other words, to prop up their shares. And now we're seeing all of these problems amplified uh, to an extreme degree when we're facing the pandemic. You mentioned that the economy was not as robust as it appeared to be, and you mentioned family salaries. What accounts for the fact that family salaries or people's salaries were lower today than they had previously been? I mean, we just have stopped paying attention to working families, and our policies have not supported them very well. In the immediate post-war era in the United States, we had a very different way of thinking about this. Full employment was a policy goal, and by full employment, we really meant policies that secure jobs for, for most people. There was some lip service to the idea of jobs for all, guaranteed jobs. This was a very important uh, agenda, economic agenda, during the Roosevelt years and also in the civil rights movement. But economists and policymakers always talked about it as something desirable, but never really fully committed to that. But at least in the early uh, post-war era, we had big public investment, public employment programs. The government supported pro-employment policies. We came out of the Great Depression with stronger bargaining. But over the years, we gradually eroded these protections that working people uh, had. And there was a lot of union busting. There was a lot of outsourcing of jobs. There is this wave of thinking that we need to create more labor mobility. Well, that's really a euphemism for outsourcing jobs and for creating a global competition among workers for the, the few jobs that are out there. So we never truly fully committed to an economy that creates good, decent employment opportunities for everyone. These are problems that have come home to roost. So now there's lots of talk about a recession. And when you take a look at the history of recessions, most recessions happen endogenously. An asset bubble bursts, or the central bank hikes interest rates too high too fast. The coronavirus is an exogenous hit, like the oil shocks of the 1970s. But that's really where the comparison ends. Why is this time truly different? Yes, we call this a supply-side shock. And what that means is that we are basically asking firms to stop producing. We're asking folks to go home. We have turned off the lights on many sectors of the economy. So we have never really experienced something like this. You know, maybe a time of war would be a comparable moment where civilian, the civilian economy shuts down, but we crank up military production. So it's not entirely comparable. But what we are seeing right now is that the first casualty are families and their jobs. 
Millions of Americans already out of work as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, and the Federal Reserve says it could get worse. The agency says our unemployment rate could top what we saw during the Great Depression. Economists from the Fed's St. Louis office took a look at the numbers and projected that coronavirus-related job losses could total 47 million. When added to those already without work, that would mean a 32.1% unemployment rate. The Federal Reserve just came out with an updated estimate of what the unemployment rate might be. And they're looking at 32 percent, you know, 30 to 32 percent, which is greater than what we experienced during the Great Depression. So this is not going to be a traditional recession in any um, shape and form, not because of the causes, but also in the way it manifests itself. And we need to think completely outside the box to figure out how to restart the economy and most importantly, how to deal with this avalanche of job losses, because that is going to inflict an enormous amount of pain on the economy. Is the U.S. at a risk of a depression? I mean, if we do nothing, yes, but the good news, I suppose, is that we've been here before. We know how to deal with depressions and we know how to deal with severe recessions. And the question is whether we will uh, come back to those early lessons from the Great Depression quickly, or whether we are going to dilly-dally and try to work through incentives and various stimulus packages that are generally designed for a demand-side problem. Here we're having a supply-side problem. So what we need really is mass mobilization, both for today, when we have to address the issues with the shortage of equipment, the shortage of medication, the shortage of staff in critical sectors, but also mobilization tomorrow when we start slowly reopening the economy and we have to employ people and provide the kind of contract and work that businesses will need to encourage them to resume their own employment. We'll be right back. If you're a regular listener to Opinion Has It, you may find yourself asking, how can you help support the work we do here on the podcast? Honestly, the best way is to become a subscriber at Project Syndicate. And now we're offering our listeners 50% off a new subscription. That means for less than $1 a week, you can help us continue to interview the experts and join a community that's committed to a crucial public good, a truly open world of ideas. Use the discount code PODCAST2020 that's podcast2020, all one word, when you subscribe on project-syndicate.org. So that makes me want to turn to modern monetary theory, which in its simplistic terms encourages fiscal spending to meet society's needs. Um, I think, as you well know, opponents of MMT typically ask, how do we pay for such things? And they often refer to inflation. Inflation doesn't really seem to be a threat at the moment. Has COVID-19 and the sudden need for massive liquidity injections and a fiscal stimulus moved MMT from the fringes into the mainstream? I mean, it has certainly increased interest in MMT, but I would say MMT 
has been in the purview of policymakers for a few years now, especially central bankers have been talking about MMT and, you know, really highlighting that we, those ideas of MMT have to be considered because central bankers themselves realize that they have limited ammunition to deal with big problems. That was even before the pandemic. And what MMT is saying is that we need to understand the monetary system that we have at hand. And different countries have different monetary systems. And what we try to do is highlight this difference that many nations around the world have their own sovereign currency, a currency which they issue and they control. And there are some important exceptions, like in the Eurozone, that don't. And that makes all the difference. A country that has its own currency is not limited in its spending um, in the conventional ways. It doesn't really depend on some sort of tax collections or borrowing to finance its projects. So MMT really looks at the plumbing of the monetary system to explain how governments pay their bills in normal times, not just in pandemic. Unfortunately, it takes a pandemic and it takes a war. It takes an extraordinary financial crisis for people to kind of awaken to the fact that, oh, gee, the government really doesn't have this problem of finding financial resources. Whenever there is a policy priority, a goal, very quickly Congress gets together, votes in a budget or package, and then all bills are paid. No taxpayers are called, no borrowers are called to finance this because it doesn't work this way. But it's because of the package, the stimulus package that was just passed was so extraordinary by normal measures, people are starting to pay attention and say, oh, look, funding is not the problem, which is truly unfortunate. Just a month ago, we were saying how during the presidential debates. For 100 years, from Teddy Roosevelt to Barack Obama, this country has been talking about the need to guarantee health care for all people. We were saying how difficult it was to pay for all of these bold progressive programs and where are you going to find the money for Medicare for all, of, for forgiving student debt. We just passed a budget that dwarfed all of these initiatives. We got over 60,000 people who die every year because they don't get to a doctor on time. So clearly we can pay them. It's just that they were not at the forefront of our policy priorities. And today we realize how sorely we need them, how much we need protection in terms of universal health coverage. Somehow or another, Canada can provide universal health care to all their people at half the cost. UK can do it, France can do it, Germany can do it, all of Europe can do it. Gee whiz, somehow or another, we are the only major country on earth that can't do it. Why is that? And in terms of paid leave and all of these other things. So MMT says you have the power. You have the power of the public purse. Employ it for the public good and do it in a way that creates uh, a good economy, stable economy, uh, full employment. And do it in a way where your constraint is not some arbitrary budget, but really inflation. But if we're facing an economy with 30 percent unemployment, we are not going to be in danger of inflation as a consequence of strong or robust demand. We need to be very uh, careful about restarting the economy and um, supporting incomes, but also production and increasing production for civilian uh, purposes. Well, normal production once the economy is ready to resume its normal economic activity. But I want to say something about the future of that economy. We have a service economy. So 
what will that world look like tomorrow? Will we resume going to concerts and movie theaters and restaurants, even when the pandemic has been put under control? Or will there be this this process of social distancing, even not as, 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 as extreme as it is now, that will continue. And if that happens, this means that the restaurants will not um, get their business back 100%. This means that the concert venues are not going to get their business back 100%. So we will have depressed demand for quite some time. You've long pushed for a federal job guarantee, which is a major component of MMT, And here, too, there has long been resistance to implementing that particular idea before the pandemic upended the labor market. What's the case for a job guarantee now? Let's just step back and think what this economy would have been like if we had a job guarantee. We have this bizarre notion that unemployed people are just some unfortunate collateral damage of of a market economy. And, you know, there's not very much that policymakers can do about it. And that is just simply wrong. We have had a fully employed economy. And fortunately, we've demonstrated that primarily during times of war and mass mobilization. But we have, in the United States, begun this conversation during the New Deal about securing some basic economic rights. And the first of those that FDR outlined was the right to a job. Sometimes they will call it fascism, and sometimes communism, and sometimes socialism. But in so doing, they are trying to make very complex and theoretical something that is really very simple and very practical. In this modern world, the access to a decent, well-paying job is a basic human right. So the job guarantee is is a public option for, for work. It just says that if you're not able to find employment elsewhere, the government has this responsibility to provide you with a living wage job option. There are many reasons why we need this. Unemployment on its own is extraordinarily expensive proposition. We pay enormous social costs because we tolerate millions and millions of people who are out of work. And those unemployed folks are the charge of the public sector anyway. The public sector has to respond and deal with the fallout of unemployment. So there are all of these social multipliers that are very expensive. So just providing a job to somebody is is the right thing to do for them, for society, for their family. Now, if we had that world today, if we had a structure, infrastructure, where the government will provide employment opportunities to those who need them, we will be much better prepared to deal with a mass unemployment problem today. Now, the job guarantee alone might not be enough to deal with 30% unemployment. We will need to do all manner of public investment and public employment and mobilization a la New Deal to deal with the job losses that we see across the board. But the most vulnerable will always have that security, employment security. And so today, if we had a jobs guarantee, we can tap into that labor force and say, look, there are some sectors acute that need to be staffed today. We are hearing um, anecdotes that 911 uh, hotlines are overwhelmed. There are not enough people who can answer and man the phone lines because of the um, COVID epidemic. So we need people to staff them. We need dispatchers. We need uh, paramedics, nurses. We need people, sanitation workers. If we had 
that infrastructure that was already thinking about creating jobs, training people, we can mobilize and divert some of those resources to the acute needs today. And then we will be better prepared to address some needs um, that we will have tomorrow. The fiscal response to COVID-19 in the United States is likely to change in the weeks and months ahead. Instead of focusing on urgent stopgap measures, I want to talk about structural reforms you recommend for countries to fully recover from the shock. We just now talked about a jobs guarantee. What else should policymakers do to facilitate long-term recovery? We need to re-engage in this conversation about the role of the public sector and what kind of an economy we want after the pandemic. This is really a, a critical moment in our own history, but also in the in the global conversation. I will use again the New Deal as an example. Before the New Deal, we didn't have minimum wages. We didn't have 40-hour working week. We did not have social security. Imagine that world, what that looked like. And we put in place these safety nets that we now take for granted. And clearly we need to strengthen them, but they were radical transformation in the welfare system and what we believe the government should do for its people. And the public sector, too, led the way by truly transforming our economy from a a rural to a developed industrial uh, country where the New Deal built, electrified the nation, built roads and bridges, began the early conservation movement with fire prevention. And there are so many projects that we launched then and there. Today, we need to re-engage in that conversation and say, okay, what do we want from our economy and our public sector? There are some things that I think that are quite obvious. We need to have universal health coverage for every single person. It's a basic human right and as a way of preparing for another similar uh, crisis. We also want to think about um, how... The private economy works. Do we want to have an economy that creates runaway inequality, that delivers the benefits of growth to very few people? We need to figure out how this economy will not just create good jobs, but also serve the needs of society. We're not running out of existential crises. We have a climate crisis to deal with. That alone requires mass mobilization. And we need to start thinking about preparedness rather than emergency response. Picking up on, you mentioned social safety nets, a laid-off bartender or restaurant worker in New York City may now be sitting in her apartment worrying whether she'll be able to pay for groceries, cover utility bills, and pay rent. Her counterpart in Amsterdam isn't as worried. Um, We've heard about how a lot of European governments have guaranteed up to 90% of wages. Why is it so hard for the U.S. government to put money in people's pockets? Look, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. In other words, if the problem is protecting payrolls, then we have the power to protect payrolls. And that's what these other countries are doing, Uh, whether it's Denmark, whether it's the UK. What the public sector is doing in those countries is they're passing budgets to essentially pay the wages 
of workers who are threatened with layoffs. Now, I did some quick calculations of what that would look like in the United States. And the bottom line is that we just passed a $2 trillion package, which is large enough to pay easily 90 to 100% of all wages in the entire economy for three months. So we do have the funding, we just don't have the will. And we don't have to pay 100% of all wages for every single person, but we can surely devise a policy of employment protection that is direct. It's much easier in a sense to protect payrolls than to have to deal with unemployment once unemployment develops. And we, we already see, in a way, that ship has sailed because we see mass layoffs. But we can stop that wave still with just directing those funds with the explicit requirements to firms that they do not uh, lay off their workers. After the 2008 crisis, the Federal Reserve's ultra-easy monetary policy benefited Wall Street and large corporations while the overwhelming majority of people gained little or nothing from the recovery. And that caused a lot of economic inequality, and it caused inequality to widen further. What can we learn from the post-2008 response when it comes to bailouts and inequality? The first lesson is that you can't focus on a financial sector as the engine of growth. What we did is we provided a lot of financial assistance to Wall Street, but we did not rescue Main Street and we did not bring the unemployment rate down quickly. It took us 10 years, more than 10 years from the elevated unemployment rates after the great financial crisis to the historic lows. So we can't wait that long. If our unemployment rate reaches 30%, how long would it take to bring unemployment down. Now, when people are getting their income from financial activities, from trade, and if our policy response is to stabilize that and rescue Wall Street, then of course, those who earn their incomes from uh, Wall Street and banking will see their incomes rise first. But the vast majority of us get our income from going to work, getting our jobs, and when you have mass unemployment, then we don't make the same kind of gains. So what we saw during the great financial crisis, it was truly extraordinary. The economy was growing. We finally recovered. The economy was growing, but the incomes only of the top 10% was growing. The incomes of the bottom 90% was falling during the recovery. And that was the largest transfer of income to the top. But it wasn't just... Uh, during the great financial crisis, we have been seeing this trend since the 80s. We have a growing economy, but that rising tide does not lift all boats. And increasingly, since the 70s and the 80s, as the economy grows, it delivers the majority of gains to a very small portion of American families. And so we need to rebalance the economy. We've got to make sure that incomes at the bottom rise. They rise faster than incomes at the top. And that means providing jobs, living wage jobs to anyone who wants those jobs and creating a bubble up effect where we strengthen the labor market first. 
The American people right now need someone to explain what is going to be done to get us out of this. It's a moment that requires leadership. It requires honest information. It requires empathy. And it requires a plan. Do you have one? The response of the United States to the COVID-19 pandemic has been slow on almost every account, whether you take a look at the public health aspect of this or to shore up the economy. And many are calling it a failure. There haven't been many messages of hope. Can the U.S. still turn this around? Yes, we can turn it around. And the reason is because we're not flying blind. We have historical experience to rely on. We had once taken the lead. We were faced with two devastating wars and a Great Depression in between. We were able to recover from that and launch in the golden age of the American economy. And we also played a leadership role globally. We launched a Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe. We were a leading voice in setting up the international architecture, institutional architecture. And this is this kind of moment. And we can certainly do this a bit faster if we had the political will. I think in, in this case, it's a, it's a matter of leadership not a matter of whether we have the know-how. I am hopeful that there are a lot of groups that have already been asking this question and pushing back against the Reagan and Thatcher rhetoric. And they're building that groundwork for rethinking and reimagining our world. It, sometimes it's a long process and a long battle, but there are critical moments that then provide the opening to um, make some of these ideas uh, come true. Pavlina, thank you. Thank you very much. That was Pavlina Chernova, an associate professor of economics at Bard College and the author of the forthcoming book, The Case for a Job Guarantee. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Dunnah.